the, with regard to religious freedom. I, I think we've seen it under attack uh, in the last number of years in ways that uh, are unprecedented in our country's history. Hello, everybody. I'm Brandon Lewis, founder of the Tennessee Conservative, and I'm joined today by Greg Martin. Greg Martin was elected to the Hamilton County Commission for District 3 in 2016 and previously served that district for four years on the school board. Previously, Greg served on the Long Beach, Mississippi School Board from 1993 to 1996. Martin is a 1981 graduate of Hickson High School, has a BA degree from Bryan College, a master's and doctoral degrees from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Martin and his wife, Sheila, have four sons, Ben, Austin, Jay, and Peyton. He is the son of Diane Killo Martin and the late John Martin, both of Hickson. Martin is a member of the Hickson Kiwanis and is the immediate past president of that civic club. He serves on the board of directors of the Friends of Hickson, on the advisory board of the North River Civic Center, and is also on the board of directors for Adult and Teen Challenge of Mid-South. He was inducted into the Hickson High School Hall of Fame in 2018. He previously served two terms on the Hickson Council of the Chamber of Commerce. He is active in his church, Calvary Chapel, Chattanooga. Martin is a realtor with Berkshire Home Services Realtor Center. And as government lockdowns roll through our nation and religious freedoms are being infringed with impunity by left-wing Democrats and even some rhino Republicans, I thought it would be timely to have Greg come on the program and talk about one of his passions and something he knows a lot about, and that is religious liberty and freedom. Before we get into the program, please consider subscribing to the Tennessee Conservative and following our social media platforms if you haven't already. While it's hard to control what's going on in D.C., we can make a difference right here in Hamilton County and Tennessee. Thank you so much, Greg, for being on the program, buddy. Glad to have you here. Well, I'm glad to be here, Brandon. Thank you for the opportunity to come and talk with you and your audience about something that not only I'm passionate about, but I think all Americans uh, should pay attention to with regard to religious freedom. I, I think we've seen it under attack uh, in the last number of years in ways that uh, are unprecedented in our country's history. And I really believe in the next 25 to 50 years, it's going to be the issue uh, that will be tweaked and adjusted uh, to our nation's detriment unless people that have an appreciation uh, for the foundation and the system that our forefathers set up uh, really rally to the cause that it's okay to think a little differently than other people. Well, That's I hope they religious freedom's all about. I hope they do. And so before we get on the topic of religious freedom, you'll talk a little bit about your family and personal interest. A side note, uh, I pulled up Long Beach, Mississippi, and I was like, well, that sounds familiar. My dad, for about a year and a half, had a vinyl top shop that was near the coast in Gulfport, and he would drive all the way to Albertville, Alabama every weekend during the summer. Oh. He would pick me up, and he would take me back down to Gulfport. He actually had a little apartment in his shop, and so I would, <laughs> I would hang out in that little apartment and dad would put vinyl tops on cars. And then about 3, 3.30, he'd knock off of work and uh, he'd take me to the beach. So I have fond memories of that neck of the woods. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, I did live down there for, oh, 13 or so years. 
And, um, you know, uh, Hickson's my briar patch is what I always tell people is born and raised here. And, uh, you know, I love doing real estate uh, as a profession because I don't have to explain it to people. Everybody knows 25 different realtors. Yeah. But prior to this career, I was in the cemetery business uh, for 20 something years and had cemeteries uh, really all over the Southeast that I managed and had a team of people that helped folks at a tender time in their life. And so I affectionately say I've gone from inches to acres. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and it's kind of hard to explain to people, you know, when you work in the cemetery, they, you know, they think you're a funeral director. They think that's just a weird business. And, and prior to being in that uh, business, I was a pastor uh, down in Mississippi in Long Beach. And, you know, people, when they meet a pastor, they think, well, this guy works one day a week and I can't cuss around him. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love being in real estate. I don't have to explain anything to people. They're just like, oh, yeah, I know you. I got a friend like you. you know? Exactly. So, uh, I know. I've been, I've been doing this for a number of years now, and it's it's a lot of fun. But, you know, my passion really comes from my faith and and not just my personal faith in God and, and uh, the Lord Jesus. That's that's another story. But but my faith in the American people and in the religious freedom that we have is something I really see eroding uh, in our country as our community and our culture gets more and more secular. Uh, we have less and less of a, of a desire and a need and appeal uh, for people to be able to think differently, um, if not biblically, at least religiously. Oh, I agree. And so let's, let's get right into it. I mean, and this is a, a bigger topic. I could, as you mentioned, probably break this into two or three separate questions, but Right. You know, why did the founders think it was essential to include religious freedom in our constitution? Who are the key players? We know that if you look at the original colonial settlements, you know, one of them was rather secular and profit driven. The other one, the, you know, the, of the first two was very much looking for a place to establish a religious enclave. Um, speak to that a little bit and, and talk about how our founders, you know, kind of got to the point where they thought it was essential that we be different than countries that had come before us. Well, you're, you're exactly right, you know, and you're referring, of course, to the Plymouth Village in uh, Massachusetts and then Jamestown in Virginia, which was more of a secular uh, business opportunity than plead religious freedom. But, you know, when, when you roll the tape forward to uh, the founding of our country in 1787 with the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in 1776, I think it's interesting that in our original Constitution, before any of the Bill of Rights, that our founders said in Article uh, 6, Section 3, that no religious test uh, shall ever be required for the qualification for people that would have public trust. So, you know, even in our founding documents, our, our uh, people who founded our constitution knew that we couldn't let religious tests be important when it came to serving as a magistrate, a senator, you know, president, Supreme Court, et cetera. And, you know, there was great debate about adopting the constitution and it barely passed, you know, it, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, almost, if it doesn't pass without Virginia and New York and Pennsylvania, it really doesn't matter if South Carolina and Georgia and <laughs> these other places pass. Those three states really had to be the ones to pass. And it, and it barely made it, I think, by 10 votes in Virginia. Uh, it, the, the, the cards were stacked against it in New York. It was very much an anti-federalist. And the gentleman behind me, Alexander Hamilton, uh, in the picture uh, over my shoulder, uh, he, he really led the way in New York uh, when they went in the Constitution uh, Convention in New York about uh, uh, two thirds of the delegates were against it. In fact, Hamilton even suggested maybe that they create a new state in lower Manhattan and New York be divided into two states. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's something as old as Alexander Hamilton because him and people in the 
main city there were very much for this idea of the Constitution. And amazingly, uh, by the time they voted on it, uh, the state of New York did pass the, the Constitution and, and the Bill of Rights. You get down to the Bill of Rights, which happened uh, a few years later. The Constitution was adopted in 88, 1788. The Bill of Rights, the first 10, uh, and the first of the first, it was ratified in 1791, which says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that was a huge thing, Brandon, because uh, many churches and many states uh, had been formed previous to that were very much tied to a church or to a religion. And I think what John Adams said uh, is something that we've forgotten today. He said uh, that our constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. Mm -hmm. and it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other people. And I think about what the great preacher in Philadelphia, I think his name was William Smith, said in 1775 after the Continental Congress met. They said, George Washington, we want you to be the general, the leader of uh, our army and Washington gets on his horse to go take command of the Continental Army, and, and everyone's wondering what's going to happen. And, and this preacher made a prophetic word. He said, religion and liberty must flourish or fall together in America. Hmm. We pray that both, both will be perpetual. And uh, so that, that there is this continual merging of faith and government at the foundation, but it's not built around a church. It's not built around an organization. It's built around an organic faith, if you will. And, you know, if you think about our country and how unique that it is, most countries were not founded um, with religious freedom. Um, in fact, I think religious freedom is truly a unique American experience. 80% of the countries in the world today, they don't tolerate religious freedom or, or people um, championing freedoms like we do in our country and i think Rick, i think i think the paper finally is getting into the speaker oh okay just a little okay. it was it must have been a near run thing because then you okay. got a little muffled there so just back up about two seconds and take off again well what i was gonna what i was saying was is that you know our country is unique because it was founded with religious freedom and a sense of christianity but not a church not an organization. So it was more of an organic thing. And when you look at the, the world today, there are so many churches that don't, uh, or so many countries today that don't value the freedom of religion. I think, you know, religious freedom is only tolerated by very few countries in the way that we champion it. We don't tolerate religious freedom. We champion it as Americans. And that's been our story. So, I mean, it, it's in the, the DNA and they thought that it was exceptionally important you know, one thing that just to back up a little bit, it kind of reminds me of or brings to mind the conversations that you see in Supreme Court confirmations where they seem to be overly interested in the religious faith of the applicants. I saw that, you know, with Kavanaugh. We saw it, you know, recently with Amy Coney Barrett. Um, the Democrats seem to be very interested in people's faith as if it's a bad thing. And it seems like they're wanting to strip that out of 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 our culture and they they pillory them for their faith in the confirmation which seems at odds with what the founders thought as far as that religious requirement in office 
Well, and I think you see that lots of times that people see religion and religious people as a detriment and not an asset uh, in, in today's economy with some people. But what folks fail to realize is that our country doesn't get founded without religion and religious freedom. And I guess you could really take it back 503 years ago to Martin Luther. When he nailed those 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg, you know, he was basically saying there's some things wrong and some things need to change in the religious order. And, you know, our, our nation was founded on a separation of church and, and sectarian re religion. Uh, but the, the, because you think about Luther does that 503 years ago, then you take, uh, you get up about 250 years ago, or you, you, you have all this going on after that with the Church of England and the King of England, you know, going to be the head of the Church of England and and, you know, you couldn't do anything other than that. You have all these countries that, have, that in their history have been founded by religion. For example, England had the Church of England. France had the Catholic. Uh, you had the Islamic State, uh, the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran. You have the Orthodox Church of Russia. All of these things. Our country is not founded with a single church, but it's founded on this ideal of a pluralist, plural, uh, pluralistic society. And our nation really, Brandon, is the only government founded without the structure of a church. And yet religion in general and Christian religion in particular abounded at our founding. I mean, you have all these state churches at the founding. You've got the Puritans in Massachusetts. You've got the Congregationalists in Connecticut. You've got the Anglicans in Virginia and down in the Carolinas. And uh, But when you come around to 1788, after we had fought the war, we're getting ready to put the Constitution together, you had all these different state churches that were in these previous colonies and the people had to find a way to come together to have this religious freedom with have religion and religious freedom without the structure of a church like you'd found in the Church of England because people had seen the corruption of that as Luther saw the corruption uh, back in his day. You know, I think it's interesting. A lot of people want to blame uh, this whole con conversation we've had the last 60, 70 years on the separation of church and state on uh, Thomas Jefferson and, you know, the First Amendment, which doesn't say that you can't have religious expression. It just says the government can't impede on our religious expression. But I think what you really want to lay that to is really to the 14th Amendment and to Abraham Lincoln. Because the 14th Amendment basically says states can't do things that go against the United States Constitution. That's, the, that's an essence of it. And the Civil War was fought basically to say, okay, states, you can't do this slavery thing y'all been doing because it, it's against that. But it's interesting, Brandon, when you look at American history, you find churches that, uh, that Massachusetts didn't divest itself of its state church until 1833. And I've always wondered why the state of Georgia in the, in the 1830s when they were kicking all the Indians out, and you think about the Brainerd Mission in Spring Place, you know, just down the road, they took a preacher uh, by the name of Samuel Worcester. His uncle's buried at Brainerd Mission, who founded the Brainerd Mission, and Samuel Worcester, uh, the famous missionary, he ministered there. The state of Georgia put him in jail for four years for no other reason than he preached the gospel among the Cherokee Indians. You, and you're like, how in the world were they able to do that? Well, because there wasn't a 14th Amendment. Hmm. They were able to say, you can't do that. And the federal government didn't step in and help. And one of the things I think is interesting, I was just in Texas not long ago. And when the Republic of Texas 
was uh, created in 1836 before it became a state, the very first school that they started was not Texas A&M. It was not the University of Texas. It was the Baptist University called Baylor. And it was the uh, Texas legislature that put that together and said, we have to have a religious institution to continue to teach morality and religion so that their republic uh, could continue to proper, properly go forward. You know, see, I, our founders, I don't know that before 1787, 1788 in the Constitution, they wanted religious freedom, but they only wanted their religious freedom. Mm -hmm. They wanted the, the Puritans want to do their thing, the, the Congregationalists their thing, the Quakers their thing in Pennsylvania. And so one of the things that you find is you find all kinds of religious persecution leading up to the Constitution in 1788 when it was ratified in the Bill of Rights in 1791. I, I don't know if you've ever been to Providence, Rhode Island. Have you, have you ever been up there before, Brandon, to Providence, Rhode Island? I don't think I've been to Providence. I've, they I've talk a little to... funny up there. And, yeah, uh, I've, I've got a couple clients that are in Rhode Island, but I've never, I've never been there. Well, one of the things that's interesting is you'll see when you go to Providence, it's on the south side of the Woonsataka River. And the reason it's on the south side is because the Puritans had given uh, the authority to chase Roger Williams, who was a dissenter. He had religious freedom to believe in conscience. They said, you can persecute him and kill him. You just can't go south of the Woonsataka River. <laughs> and so he set up the first Baptist church in America in Providence, Rhode Island there, because he believed in the freedom of conscience. And you find in, in history that uh, the First Baptist Church of Kittery, Maine, which was in Massachusetts at this time, they were persecuted as well. And the whole church jumps on a ship, travels down to Charleston, South Carolina, 300 people to get away from persecution and founded the First Baptist Church of Charleston, South Carolina. So, you know, we tend to think, well, people came here for religious freedom. No, they really didn't come here for religious freedom. They came here for their religious freedom and not for other people. And that doesn't come about until 1788 and in 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 1791 with the, the Bill of Rights. You know, it's an interesting thing, Brandon, in, in the early 1700s, just to give you an example, in Virginia, it was illegal for you to be anything but an Anglican. And if you, uh, a member of the Anglican Church, so you couldn't serve in the military, you couldn't serve as an officer, et cetera. And if, if, if it was a law that said if a person was brought up in the Christian religion and yet they ended up denying the existence of God, the Holy Trinity, you know, they believed in the divine authority of scripture. They threw that out the window that they were prohibited from holding any office. And if they continued with a second offense, they were stripped their rights of guardianship of their own children. Wow. And they were three years in prison. And, and, and you roll the tape forward, go to 1760. From, it, it, there, there's, there's a book I read that was documenting from 1760 to 1778. So you're talking about right before the revolution and in the very beginning of those those 18 years, there are over 150 documentation attacks on evangelical Christians. And uh, one of the most known is a guy by the name of John Warler. He's in Virginia, and he's speaking at his separatist organization church. And the Anglican comes in, and they beat him with a horsewhip till he's bloody in front of his congregation. They drag him out, and they put him in jail for 113 days for the crime of talking religion and it not being the Anglican religion. Wow. So I think a lot of people have this misnomer that folks came here for religious freedom and they came for their freedom, but not for the freedom of everyone. So when the country finally wins the war and they're like, okay, what are we going to do about this religious thing? We want to have freedom. And so they came up 
with this idea that we're not going to have anybody in office that has to pass a religious test. And then they later came along and said, that's not good enough. We want to make sure that the government does not impede on anyone who thinks differently about, about religion. So we talked a little bit about the debate of religious freedom in early Virginia. You touched on that a little bit um, mm -hmm. and kind of went through a little bit of the 1718 and, or the 1787 impact um, of future religious freedoms. Talk about the, uh, you know, we talked about the, the First Amendment and you talked about the 14th Amendment. Unpack the 14th a little bit because people understand what the first is. It's kind of kind of plain and it's well known. But talk a little bit about the 14th Amendment and, and how that further advanced it. Well, what the 14th Amendment basically said is that churches can, uh, that well, not churches, that states can no longer have laws that are in opposition to the federal government. You know, Madison really wanted that in the original constitution and he was outvoted in the Constitutional Convention. So that came about, you know, um, I think it was 1866, somewhere in that neighborhood, came about long after he was gone. And it was a way to protect people, of the federal government to protect people uh, when their states were, were not in compliance with what the federal government, and slavery was the main issue, obviously driving that, but it's been used in court cases. Uh, for that. You know, the, the thing about when you look at the, the, the early history and the persecution that was leading up to 1788 with the Constitution, 1799 with the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment, you know, there were so many people that were put in jail. And I, I love these stories about these preachers that were put in jail. I, uh, they would often be put in jail for preaching, for sharing their gospel uh, that was different. And, and they would, uh, there's stories that jailers would come by the windows and urinate on the ministers that were in the jail that uh, there, there's this one story that what happened is, is that uh, the, the congregation would gather outside and after they had tried those disgusting things I just mentioned, the jail built a wall around so the congregants couldn't get close enough to the minister to hear him preaching through the windows. So they would wow. raise a little white flag over the wall to say to their minister, we're here. And they would preach through the window, past the urine, over the wall, to the people that came to hear. You know, we, we, we think about, uh, that sounds like things that would happen in China or some other crazy country, but that's a little bit about how, what led up to the founding of this, of, of, our, great, of our great country. You know, one of, the, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize um, is that George Washington, after he was elected president, he was the first head of state to significantly recognize the Jewish people. And, you know, he takes this tour of the country. He goes up to Rhode Island, and there's a great marker out there at Newport. There's one down in Savannah, Georgia, if you're ever down there, where he spoke to the Jewish synagogue down there. And, and, he, and he said a lot of things. He said, you know, it's not enough for us to just tolerate different religions, but we need to embrace all religions, is what Washington said. That was earth shattering. That was, that was ground setting uh, for Washington to say that. And I love the statement. He said, everyone shall sit in safely, safety under their own fig and under their own vine and fig, and there shall be none to make him afraid. This is what Washington's vision was. This is what our founders vision. When you get past the war and you get to that, that people would be able to have their religious expression in their own way. So this, I'm getting out of order here, but you brought okay. up a couple of really good points and I just want to get your take on it. And then I want to get get back to a couple of these central questions about the founders, but I'm afraid if I miss my train of thought here, I might not circle back to it as I should. It's okay. People got on a boat. 
-hmm. left as an entire congregation mm -hmm. to settle somewhere else, leaving behind all kinds of property, farmland, homesteads, probably merchants, businesses. People were persecuted. Their congregants came anyway. What happened to us as a nation, especially, especially conservative Christians? We seem to be almost silent, bordering on apathetic as it relates to persecution of our religious freedoms. You know, recently with the lockdowns, people would tolerate a combination of one petty tyrant telling them to close their church, some dubious science, and um, social pressure to basically get rid of or, or at least not make much of a fuss over their fundamental religious freedoms. How has this happened? How do you explain it? Well, I, that's a very complex question, and I don't know that I can explain it, but I can offer my opinion. I'll take the opinion. <laughs> you, you know, when our country was founded, Brandon, there was less than 1% that was non-religious. Just about everyone in our founding was Christian, Protestant, Unitarian, uh, Universalist, but they at least, at the very least, tipped their hat to God. Uh, even Thomas Paine, the great uh, atheist of the day, talked about how America was breaking free, that we were the new Israel. And here he was, he was not a person who professed faith in Christ or anything like that, and yet he called America this new Israel. I, I, you roll the tape forward, you know, in the 1950s, uh, there were only 5% of the country that was non-religious. Today it's 26%. Just 10 years ago, it was 17% of people that were non-religious, identified as non-religious. I, I think what's happened is, is that we have, have a society that's growing that doesn't see the value in religion at all. And, uh, and I'm certainly not for coercing anybody into religion. That goes against very much what I believe in, in my heart. I believe what our founders believed. They weren't for coercion at all either. But people have looked at religion as something that's in the way, it's an obstacle, it's old-fashioned, it's out of date, it's, it's not um, with the time, so to speak. And so it's easy to displace or dismiss, I should say, the history of our country. And let me give you an example. You know, America's first personality, celebrity, first celebrity, was a preacher by the name of George Whitfield. In fact, Whitfield County, right down the road from us in Dalton, is... is in, in honor of him. I think it's the only county in the country that's named for him. George Whitfield came to America 1738-36, somewhere around in there, and he died in 1770. And he was recognized by over 80% of people that were in the colonial United States. That's amazing when you think about it. No wow. internet, no television, no radio. He was, he was recognized because here's what he did. He came and he preached to the Church of England in England. When he came here, he was not welcomed in the congregational churches. He was not welcomed in a lot of churches because he preached that the church needed to be reformed and you needed to take responsibility for your own individual um, sins. And so he often spoke in the fields. I love the story. He goes to Philadelphia, which was the largest city in America, about 30,000 at this time. This is in the early 1830s, 1840, somewhere around in there. I'm 17. I'm sorry, 1730, 1740s. And Ben Franklin knows he's coming. Ben Franklin um, is a publisher. 
And he, he lines these publishers, 11 of them, up and down the East Coast to publish his sermons. And Ben Franklin charged five times as much money to print George Whitfield's sermons as he did his own almanac. So consequently, Ben Franklin got rich and George Whitfield got famous. And, and, and he preached this. He basically said, the church has been amiss here and we need to get right. We need to get our hearts right. And it needs to be an individual. Well, that it needs to be an individual experience. The church as a whole has gotten corrupt here in the first great awakening. What that did is that laid the foundation and the framework that just a few years later that people could say politically, we need to embrace our individual freedoms. It's not just the church, it's the potty politic. Here's the interesting thing about George Whitfield. I've not been to Newberry, Massachusetts, but that is on my bucket list. I don't even know where it is. I know it's north of Boston. But he was buried there in 1770. He died. He died before the revolution of 1776. So you don't really read or hear much about him for a lot of reasons, but mainly for that reason. But in 1775, 1776, when the war's going on, Benedict Arnold's getting his army together to go to Quebec and the Continental Army. This is before he became a traitor. And he's getting his army together and they decide that they're going to go by Newberry and visit the grave of George Whitfield for inspiration. And they're going by his grave because they're going to Quebec. They're either going to convert him to the Patriot cause. They're going to conquer him, one of the two. So they go by his grave and his minister, the chaplain, Reverend Spring, says, well, let's dig up his grave and let's take the vestiges off of Reverend Whitfield. Kind of like a good luck charm. That's kind of gross, weird, odd to all of us today. But that's exactly what they did. And I tell you that story to tell you what kind of influence what kind of impact this preacher made. And he was America's first celebrity, if you will, because he was known by so many people. People listened to him because he, his message basically was the church has gotten messed up here. It's gotten too organized, too impersonal, too corrupt. And it did not make too much of a stretch for the next generation to say the government's done the same thing. And we need to be able to rebel against it and we need to have our own individual liberties. And that's exactly what George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and all those guys did. They went after the political reformation as George Whitfield first went after the religious reformation. I think that story gets lost a lot in American uh, history about how the, how the, what laid the foundation for the political freedoms of history or for the political freedoms of our citizens was preceded by the religious freedoms in, in the sense of personal responsibility. So today, um, we don't seem to have any of that rigor or enthusiasm for our faith. We may in our personal life and, and how we have a relationship, but when it comes to political or cultural in interference, we seem to be pretty blasé about how it impacts our religious freedoms. So fast forwarding even to the last 10 to 15 years, even 20 years ago, when, when I was just getting out of undergraduate, it, it did not seem to be that way. If we look at just the landscape of the last 10 years or so, what would you say, where has this change come from? How, how people become so cowed about issues as it relates to um, social persecution, uh, media persecution of the faith? Well, I, I think you have a lot of people in media and a lot of people uh, in society, like I said, who they don't, they don't value. They're not religious, first of all. And so therefore they don't value religion and they see it as something that is 
in the way. And I'll give you a really good example. You know, last year in the presidential debate uh, on the Democrat side, uh, Mr. Beto O'Rourke, who will, will probably end up in uh, Mr. Biden's cabinet if Biden indeed wins this election. Uh, you know, he was asked in that debate, do you think religious institutions like colleges, churches, and charities should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? That's a pretty loaded question. And here was his answer. He said, yes. And this is someone's going to be in the Biden administration. Yes, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone, any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and civil rights of every single one of us. We're going to make that a top priority and we're going to stop those who are infringing on the human rights of fellow Americans. So what Mr. O'Rourke was basically saying is, if you're religious and your conviction about traditional marriage, your conviction about nature when it comes to human sexuality and, and all of those types of things, if you're an old fashioned, old fuddy-duddy religious person, we're coming after your tax exempt status as a church, as a college, as a, as, as a charity. Think about the ramifications for that. So not only is that something that's quiet, that's something that's being trumpeted by major political figures that are on the left. And that's very scary to me because I believe it's okay if you and I think differently about marriage or sexuality or religion. If you believe there's a God or don't believe there's a God, if you believe God is the Lord Jesus or you believe he's Buddha, I'm okay with that, Brandon, if you and I see it differently. What I'm not okay with is some politician or the state telling us, you better, bless the Lord, conform to the way that we see right and wrong. And if you don't, then you're hurting and violating other people. That is so un-American in our history. And uh, I'm fired up about that. So many people say our founders weren't Christian, but you've obviously talked through that point. Um, when you look at some of the, I guess some of the things that are happening currently in the environment, for example, uh, and you probably keep up with this a little bit better than I do, especially in states like California, and even to a degree ours. I mean, the, the fact that they shut churches down for any length of time really sticks in my craw and the fact that they that people so quietly and meekly went along with it. Uh, my wife was telling me, uh, you know, she reads a lot and has recently read a little bit about um, about how they got Jewish fathers to, to go off to concentration camps. They just told them it's safe. This is safe. You'll be safe if you go here. You'll be safe if you do this. And eventually the social pressure makes people walk into situations that are that are not safe for them physically in that instance. But I think um, I don't think our religious freedoms are safe in an environment where they can close down houses of, of worship over what I perceive as being a, a rather minor risk to the majority of the population. You see those things happening in California. Uh, we saw it happen here in our own state. I mean, you can say that it didn't happen. It physically happened. Uh, a lot of those rulings came down, at least temporarily. Um, it, it seems to me almost like it's a test of the American people. It's a test of the American Christian. Um, how did we do in that test? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of things that I think are interesting about not just that, but forget about the corona thing uh, for a moment. You know, there's a lot of things going on in social media that are in the woke society that are really challenging, you know, like, you know, in California, let's just let's just move from the liberal left coast across the country. 
you know, you've got California where Governor Newsom uh, got a state judge to affirm his ruling that uh, these churches couldn't be open and there was no singing allowed, state judge. And, uh, you know, there was a church out there, the North Valley Baptist Church was being fined, I think, $50,000 a week for meeting. Uh, MacArthur's church was challenged. They were going to turn the lights out. I'm not exactly sure what all's happened out there, but I know MacArthur is hung pretty strong and solid on that. Then you come to Nevada, where the governor said that, um, you, you know, you can have 50% in your casino, but you can only have 50 people in your church, even if your church is as big as a casino, which to me, if I was pastor of a church in Nevada, I'd just go and have church in a casino and uh, <laughs> around the crap table say, come on, we're going to just worship the Lord here and see how that goes. And, and you know, we kind of halfway expect that from the left liberal blue coast of California. But what concerns me is like when the Corona lockdown, I remember watching a pastor in Greenville, Mississippi, who he was having an outdoor worship service with about 10 people in their cars. And he brought his little pulpit out on the porch of the little old church and was preaching. They had 20 police officers show up. And, uh, and it was crazy uh, to, to watch that. You wouldn't think of that in Mississippi. Or you take down in Birmingham, the pastor of the Church of the Highlands, which is a large church with campuses all over the state of Alabama, he liked a particular tweet or social, social media post. And they came in and they closed down uh, the Birmingham school system and the housing authority said, you can no longer meet in our school or in our public housing if you're going to have a pastor that's going to like a conservative tweet. That is so un-American, un-Southern. <laughs> if you ask me, because Southern people, at least my experience has been, they believe that people ought to have the right to believe and think a little bit different uh, in our society. You know, one of the things that I am so thankful for is for Governor Lee, uh, who I think is a genuine person of faith, who has not allowed uh, churches to be impeded in any way uh, in their religious expression. I'm thankful that I'm a Tennessean uh, and that I'm not a Californian. Uh, because we still mm -hmm. have this freedom here. And, you know, it's not just religious freedom. It's the freedom to disagree. That's what's really at stake here. It's more than religious freedom. It's the ability to think differently and to not be censored and to not be canceled uh, by culture or by social media. That's what we believe in. I think if our founders today uh, were here, I think that's the path that they gave us. You know, and I have to say this too, Brandon. You know, I hear people say all the time about, you know, what a flawed system America is and you know, the 1619 Project and, you know, all of these things that, you know, America's a terrible place and a horrible place needs to be reinvented. I say hogwash to all of that. I do. We were founded by the greatest men in the history of the world because they knew that men were sinful, wicked, and if left unchecked, they would totally devour one another. So they set up this system of government with pull and push where you had all these checks and balances, and they set up a system of government that we've amended 28 times to continue to give the march of freedom. Uh, when you think about the, the main issue of slavery, we think about the main issue of the women's right to vote. Our founders set up a system to extend freedom, not to impede it. What, what concerns me today is people who want to impede individual freedoms and responsibility. I agree. Well, closing question. Sure. Uh, should conservatives and Christians, you know, be worried about this erosion of civil liberties 
And then the second follow-up question would be, uh, what type of practical actions can a conservative Christian take? Because right now, um, people, conservatives in particular, seem to be a lot more cerebral about political issues and a lot less tactical and practical about political issues. And as it relates to religious freedoms, I would say the same thing. Uh, the left is really good about blocking and tackling locally. We've seen that in recent elections. Um, if you were a conservative Christian, other than being aware of it mentally, which frankly doesn't get you very much or very far, you, you could be ignorant or aware if you never take action, the result's the same. Uh, what type of practical actions can conservatives and Christians take to make sure that that we can protect these things that have been so essential and foundational to our American culture? Well, I, I would say this, that first of all, I, I don't know that I would be worried as much as I would be vigilant. Uh, worry is an emotion that can uh, hurt you. But what's more important, I think, is to be in, is to be vigilant. You know, and to me, the way I look at it is this. To me, it's not, I'm not looking to convert the world through politics at all. In fact, I'm I'm, I really find myself a little bit put off by politicians who are constantly giving the Jesus card to people. Vote for me because I'm a Christian. Vote for me, and, you know, whatever. That doesn't inspire me. I think that's using God instead of uh, serving God and man in a lot of ways. But I think what's more important is this. Um, and I guess the best way I know to say this is to tell a story to you. I had a guy call me right after the election. He said, it's my fault. I said, what do you mean it's your fault? It is my fault that the election's gone the way it is. I've not been involved. I've been a closet conservative. What do I do? And I said, well, let me tell you something. If all you ever do is just vote, you get a D minus in democracy. And so when you want to be a valedictorian in democracy, there are a lot of things that you can do. Worrying is just one thing that makes you feel good or bad, whatever. Mm -hmm. But here's what you can do. I think you can get engaged, first of all, in campaigns. And I think about what's going on down in Georgia, just across the border. What a great opportunity for people in our community to get down there and help uh, Senator Loeffler and Senator Perdue uh, save the Senate from the radical Democrats who don't believe in religious freedom, who, who want to support the agenda of people like Beto O'Rourke. And I think that we need to be engaged and involved and help them, knocking on doors, making contributions, making phone calls, making sure that our friends that are over the border are getting to the polls and that they go and vote. Because to me, what's important in that race uh, is that conservative people keep the Senate and that we continue to fly the, the freedom of thought, freedom to think differently. It's not just religious freedom to me. It's more than that. It's the freedom to think, to be a free thinker and to think differently. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I'm okay if people don't think like a Christian. I just don't want to impede on Christian people and their right to think the way that they have uh, for years when it comes to issues like marriage and sexuality and all these other issues that, that spring from our faith. So I think getting involved in local races is important. Getting involved and in finding out about candidates. Uh, when you think about the uh, local election for mayor that's coming up here in March, uh, you think about uh, commission, county mayor, school board races that'll be up on the ballot in 2022. People getting involved and helping out in freedom loving Americans because uh, you know so often uh, you, you don't find very many people in politics that make it to the top office like President Trump did from nowhere. Typically, mm -hmm. 
they're more like Thomas Kane, who uh, ran with Hillary Clinton as vice president. I think he was a city councilman, and then he became yeah. a the congressman senator. So it's about filling the bench uh, when it comes to when you think about these national leagues, uh, the national politics. And I think also that what's important is that you have people that believe in freedom and believe in the fundamentals of what our country was founded upon and are not apologetic for the way our country was founded uh, and, and, and be supportive and helpful of folks like that. It's about being engaged. It's not about being concerned. It's about being engaged. Concern is good, but it's not good enough. I agree, and I, I could not have said that any better. I would rather, I would rather have one person take one afternoon and knock on a hundred doors, or give a thousand dollars, or make a hundred phone calls for a candidate, or something to that effect, or volunteer for an organization, than to post on social media for 364 days a year. Because those are the things that practically move the needle. Um, it's the difference between you know reading 5,000 running magazines and just lacing on your sneakers and running around the house. You'll get a lot more mileage for your help out of just getting out there and doing something. So well, great. I would, right, and I would, encourage your, I would encourage your viewers to not get a D minus in democracy and simply vote, but move to the head of the class, move to engagement. And uh, I would encourage us all to get a C or a B or move to an A and get involved in in, in all the different ways. You find those conservative candidates that you believe in, who sing from the same hymn book you sing from, who believe in the fundamentals of our nation and how it was founded and unapologetic. You let them know of your willingness to help them. I promise you there are places for the Kelly Lofters and the David Perdue's because that's what's right in front of us, uh, that they're looking for folks that can help. Well, I agree. Well, I couldn't think of a better place to end it. Greg, I appreciate your time today. This has been informative. I've learned a lot sitting here and uh, listening to people like you that know a lot more about these subjects than I do. And I hope that our listeners have as well. You're a busy, you know, busy man. I appreciate it. And uh, I do appreciate your unapologetic representation of conservatism because we have a whole lot of folks that, uh, that run on the R ticket just because it's the only way they can get to the top. And they'd just as soon run as a D if a D were there, but the county sometimes in the districts are a certain way. And so I'm glad to have congruence there. And uh, if you've enjoyed this program, please do subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us, uh, share our content. Uh, we need as many grassroots subscribers as we can get and we can do it with your help. Until next time, I'm Brandon Lewis with the Tennessee Conservative signing off.